0: I think just about any compelling sermon that you ever hear is based upon the presupposition that the subject matter of that sermon is interesting to you, or at least you feel you need to hear it. So, if I were talking today about heaven, for instance, there's a built-in level of interest in that for everybody because, well, we're all going to die one day, and we want to know what's going to happen when we do. Or maybe if I were talking about marriage today, um, we may not want to hear another sermon on marriage, but all of us who are married would probably admit we could use it. We could use the help or parenting or finances or so many other subjects. But when the subject matter of the sermon deals with temptation, I'm not sure that I can make a presupposition that everybody in the room really cares about sin. I mean, there was a time where that would just be a given. That that would be a subject matter that the church would deal with often. And that people would respond to it with softness of heart, openness of mind, o- obedience to what the Scriptures say. But frankly, I'm not, I'm not sure that nearly as many Christians, and even those who do, do so nearly as much really care if they sin or not. Maybe we've got the wrong ideas of God's grace. Maybe we're committing the classic sin that Paul addressed in the book of Romans in chapter 6. Misunderstanding the nature of grace altogether, that it gives us some sort of license to do whatever we want, just being presumptive on God's grace, that He'll, he'll forgive it. It'll all be wiped away. Maybe it's because in our own experience we're not feeling whatever that means. Or, or sensing, whatever that entails, that sin has any real effect on us. I mean, we live in a world that's just saturated with it. The conditions that make us sick with it are so commonplace to us that maybe, maybe we don't know what it feels like to be healthy anymore. It's so taken its toll on us that we think this is just the norm that we're supposed to live in. Been revisiting some old classics of late, and. One of those is by that Puritan pastor, John Owen. And John Owen famously says, and this is a modern rendition of his wording, he famously says, be killing sin or it will be killing you. His word is mortification. In his book, The Mortification of Sin, in Romans eight thirteen, he's describing what this passage is about. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And though you and I can't eliminate all the effects of sin in this life, and it's unlikely that we will be sinless until we reach glory, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't be sinning less. It doesn't mean that we should not be aspiring to the holiness of Christ. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't be diligently fighting the desires that war in us the opportunities to satisfy those desires that temptation brings and putting to death sin. Owen outlines in his book, For the Dangers of Sin. And I want you to consider these today before I even delve into the subject matter. Because again, my premise in beginning this message is this. The message, a message about temptation isn't going to be worth much to you if you don't care about sin. Well, this is what Owen says. He said these are the dangers that sin poses, first of all, for the believer, which the majority of us in this room are, for the believer that we would become hardened by sin's deceitfulness. That we'd be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We know the Bible says the wages of sin is death. and We know that's an ultimate effect of sin. And we know that that effect is not ours if we're Christian because there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. But it doesn't mean that we're immune for the, from the other effects of sin. Like more sin. Like a callousness towards sin. Like an indifference towards it. Like being deceived by it as if it's not doing any damage to us or the people around us. Number two, he says that sin poses the danger of invoking God's discipline on us. Again, we're forgiven of sin. But it doesn't mean that as God's children, we're not going to face His disciplining hand because of our sin. And that's unpleasant and painful, the Bible says. It's painful while we receive it. And I don't know about you, but I want to be blessed by the hand of God, not punished by the hand of God. He also says a danger for believers is that we lose our peace and we lose our spiritual strength. Again, to me, that's just sort of the condition. You know, when you get used to being tired all the time... When you get used to being frustrated all the time or discouraged all the time, or maybe during these long, wet, cold Alabama winters, we get used to having a stuffy nose all the time or a cough or an itch in the throat all the time. (coughs) I did set that up, but my throat was itching. (coughs) That was not just an object lesson. But we get used to just being stressed. And anxious, not just about conditions, but about our own lives, our own morality, our own sense of right and wrong, this lack of ease and peace. And then spiritual strength. Where's the spiritual strength? Is this normal Christianity that we live? Is is it normal Christianity that you live? When you look at your life and you're, you're reading through the New Testament text and you see descriptions of these great people of God, you say, yeah, it's me too, or is it foreign to us? And finally, there's the danger of eternal destruction. That maybe the pervasive presence and the consistent practice of sin in our life is actually revealing something that we don't want to admit. I'm not really saved. I don't really have the Spirit of God in me which wars against my flesh. I don't have the presence of Christ that battles against my unrighteousness. I like sinning. And I'm comfortable in it. I'm at peace with it. And I don't have a problem with it. And maybe it's eternal destruction that I should be most concerned about, not temporal discomfort, not being ill at ease, not being disciplined by God, but by the very eternal consequences. So today I just pray as a setup, a beginning to this message that God will stir all of our hearts to a concern about that which concerns His To recognize that sin grieves the Holy Spirit according to Ephesians chapter 4. That our sins re-wound an already wounded Messiah. And at the very least, sin can wreck your testimony, your witness, and your faithfulness. Would you pray with me this morning as we talk about sin and temptation together? Father, my presupposition in people's hearing is that they will be interested in the subject. But my presupposition in speaking is that Your Holy Spirit is powerful and operating presently in us that You will not allow Your Word to return void. You will cause it to accomplish the purposes for which You are sending it. So Father, I'm trusting in You. I'm trusting in the power of Your Holy Spirit. I'm trusting in the authority the living content of your word to sink deep, to have its effect that you intend, and to bring about a result that pleases you and blesses us. May there be a harvest of righteousness based on what we do with what we hear today. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. I want you to turn your attention this morning to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4, If those of you who are going through your Bible reading plan, you're way past Matthew chapter 4 by now. But you've seen this in the, con- in the context of the unfolding storyline, the revealing, the unveiling, as it were, of Jesus Christ. We saw in chapter 3, He's just undergone a public baptism, a public inauguration of sorts. And the declaration that this is the Son of God in whom He's well pleased. The Savior of the world, taking away our sins. Jesus, perfect righteousness for our sake. And the Bible picks up there immediately, verse 1 of chapter 4, then Jesus. Immediately after this pinnacle event, this great coronation, this is my son. Listen to him. This is my son. Follow him. This is my son. Trust in him. After this pinnacle, Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now God doesn't tempt us. We know that from Scripture. He doesn't tempt us. God is not the cause, the instrument, nor does He have any desire ever for any purpose that we should ever sin. He's not the author of it, the architect of it, and He's not the instigator of it. But it was by God's design that this would happen to Jesus. And we're going to talk about why in just a minute. It says, after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, He was hungry. Uh, that, That might be the greatest understatement you're going to read in the Gospel of Matthew. And by the way, let me add this here just for a moment. I don't think we're talking about something that is, in itself, supernatural here. I think there might be a tendency to dismiss what you're about here and say, oh, 40 days, 40 nights, no one can survive that. Well, one, there are different types of fasts. There are different ways that you could have. And it's not physically impossible. It might be exceedingly difficult to undergo a 40-day fast without food. It's not impossible. It has been done. So perhaps Jesus only had water. Perhaps he limited himself. We don't know. This is a physically excruciating, physically exhausting, emotionally, psychologically wrenching event. But Jesus is a man out in the wilderness who subjected himself to this for 40 days and 40 nights. And he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Did he catch that contextual bridge? It was just declared by the voice of God Himself that this is my Son. So all that could hear, Jesus was spoken by the Father as His Son. And so Satan now comes in, and what does he do in so many acts of temptation? So it's just this tiniest little seed of, of doubt. And when does he come with temptation? When you're weak and when you're tired, because you're so much more vulnerable, so much more susceptible to it, I think sometimes in our fatigue and in our frustration, in our exhaustion, in our anxiety, in, in, in our stress, and you know we we work so hard and we've denied ourselves so much and we've been going so long and we don't haven't had a break and things have been hard against us and all that and in our minds we may not say it explicitly, but implicitly we think. We deserve the reward of sin. And so he comes at us in that weakness. Man, we're too tired to resist. We're not thinking clearly. Our desires are overwhelmed. our common thinking. And man, we are so short-term in our thinking right now. We're not thinking long-term. We're not thinking about cause and effect. We're thinking about satisfaction of an immediate need or feeling. And boom, he hits. And he says, if you're the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city. He set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and he said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it's written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they'll bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, again it's written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. It is kind of interesting in the point and counterpoint of this spiritual battle that Jesus' response to the temptation of the enemy is to quote a Scripture that's the foundation of his response. Why I do what I do is my faithfulness to what God requires. But Satan is clever, isn't he? You want to use Scripture? I'll use Scripture. I know Scripture too. Let's try this one. How about you do this? How about you go to the top of the temple and you jump off? Because doesn't the Bible say, I can use Scripture too. I can twist it. I can contort it. I can make it fit what you really want. I can make Scripture serve you. How about that? Jesus says you should not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain, showed him all the kings of the world in their glory. I believe this is mental as in a vision. I, I don't think that this happens physically. One, there's not a mountain that you can stand on that you can see it all. But whatever may be in play here, he helps him see all these things. And he says to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan. For it's written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. First temptation is rather subtle, and it's nothing inherently sinful, right? You're hungry. Do this. Nothing sinful about making yourself a meal. And then the second temptation, it's a twisting of Scripture. But you could build a case. You'd be wrong. But that was his challenge, to make this verse suit you. And then Satan just forgoes all subtleties and just goes full frontal with him. I tell you what, let's just get down to the root of everything that I really want. I want you and every other person to find all their pleasure, all their satisfaction, all their desires met in me and not in God. But Satan, the great deceiver, Satan, the profound substituter, Satan, the accomplished liar, would have you believe that he could give you the things that he promises. That he could give you the things that you really want, but he never can. Let's consider just a few questions, though, before we delve into Jesus' response and what it means to us. First one is this, what is temptation? What what is temptation? I thought about using some illustrations, there are a lot of clever ones and some humorous ones, but I don't want to minimize this. What is temptation? Referring back to our old friend John Owen, this is what he said. He said, temptation is anything with the ability to entice the Christian's mind or heart away from obedience to God and redirect it towards sin. Let me say it again. Anything with the ability to entice the Christian's mind or heart away from disobedience to God and redirect it towards sin. So where does this temptation come from then? If temptation would draw our hearts and our minds away from God towards ourselves or something else, where does it come from? Well, temptation cannot exist where desire itself does not exist. You can't be tempted to do something you don't want to do. Temptations come from our desires. They come from something that we want. Temptations don't produce those desires. Desires produce the temptations. Many of us learned this as we went through that book, Rewiring Your Heart. And in Bowden's book, Rewiring Your Heart, he says this, all temptations can do is point out the opportunity to fulfill existing desires. And so the premise is this if you really want to be free of sin, you've got to do more than just fight temptation, you've got to deal with desires. What's in my heart? Why is my heart wrong? Why are my desires broken? How do I address the seed, the root? That's where temptation comes from. So then the question might arise naturally, what could Jesus know of temptation? I mean, that's a fair question, right? What could Jesus know of temptation? I mean, one thing that's sure that we could all affirm, we all have to affirm to be orthodox, is that Jesus never sinned. Had Jesus ever sinned, he could not be a sinless sacrifice for your sin and my sin. He could have died in exactly the same way, but he would have been dying for his sins, not ours. So we affirm absolutely, unequivocally, that Jesus did not sin. But don't deny Jesus His full humanity. Don't deny Jesus a body that gets tired and needs rest, a stomach that rumbles and needs food, a throat that gets parched and needs water. Don't des- deny Jesus the essential nature of his humanity yes he's fully god but he's fully man as such he has real human needs and real human desires so hunger is real he knows what god's will for him is to accomplish and he knows the means to accomplishing god's will is a very painful means indeed He knows what God's going to give him one day, and he knows the means to accomplishing that is to die on a cross. That's why when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, he prays and he sweats and he bleeds over that death and that separation because of sin. But when it comes to the raw nature of temptation and sin, I think sometimes you and I have got it all in reverse When it comes to how would Jesus know anything about my temptation and yours? See, some of you in this room are thinking that you're, man, you're just, you're an expert at temptation. You you think you're an expert at it. Like, man, I, I, I've dealt with the temptation. I've had, I've had all the temptations. But your experience is the experience of a loser. I mean, you, you might be the one that said, man, I have been in so many fights. I can tell you about fighting, but you've never won one. You've gotten your your fanny kicked over and over again. Jesus knows about temptation because in those battles against the desires of the flesh and in those needs that we would meet outside of God's intention for us, in those fights, Jesus always won. You want an expert in temptation? Don't look to the person right or left of you. Look to Jesus. He was in every fight like we are. He's been tempted in every way that you and I are tempted. But guess what's absolutely different about Jesus and us? He never sinned. You want advice? You want counsel? You want support? You want an example? You want the power to resist temptation? Well, that would have to be Jesus. So what did Jesus' temptations have to do with me? Well, that's it. Hebrews 4.15 says that He was tempted in every respect like we are. And I get that on the surface, these temptations may seem far removed from us. Many of the women in the church and some of the men supporting them are doing a fast right now, Thursday evening through Friday evening. And I, I get the challenges to that. It's hard for me to fast more than a couple of hours sometimes. But it's not like this. It's not this. We say, I, I can't identify with that. And, and if you're like me, who doesn't like to go above the second rung of a ladder... The idea of going to the pinnacle of the temple has no temptation quality to it whatsoever. Like, not not tempted, not interested in that, not going up there. But what we might find is what looks unconnected to us is at the root of every sort of temptation that you and I ever face. And the core issues are the same. So let's look at what Jesus was actually being tempted with here for a moment. I'm talk about the essence of these temptations. The essence of these temptations. Again, let's look at the text. If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Here's Jesus out in the, the wilderness. Hungry, no doubt. Thirsty, absolutely. Tired, worn down. And all the effects of this strenuous, exhausting fast And Satan plants this seed of doubt regarding the goodness of God. In your neediest state, when things are at their worst, when you're feeling the most pain, and you can't see what God is doing or understand why He's allowing it, in those most challenging moments of your life, you will be tempted to doubt that God is really good. Is God really good? Wife has a diagnosis of cancer. I've lost a child. I'm unemployed. The list just goes on and on and on. Will you doubt the goodness of God? Would you consider some parallels here that you may have, may have overlooked sometimes in reading the text of Matthew? I said last week that Jesus is for us the new and better Adam that all of humanity can be divided into two camps, those who are in Adam and those who are in Christ. Those who still have Adam as their head and we've inherited his sin nature and we're in the same ultimate condition of Adam. We're separated from God because of our sin. Or those who are in Christ, the new and better Adam, who succeeded where Adam failed, who where Adam was sinful, he was sinless, who redeems for us and gives us a new future, makes for us, for himself, a new people. Consider the comparison of Jesus to Adam. When Adam was tempted in in the book of Genesis, he was in a garden, and it was perfect. And God was there, and he had everything he needed, everything was provided for him, he was still tempted in that garden. Jesus is tempted in a desert. When Adam was tempted, he had the support of Eve. He had someone that he loved and cared for, and vice versa, there with him, Jesus is all alone. Adam was tempted in the context of Plenty. Anything he needs is within arm's reach. Jesus is tempted when hungry and tired. But most importantly, when Adam was tempted in the garden, he failed. But Jesus succeeded. And I also said that that Jesus is not just a new and better Adam, that Jesus is the new and true Israel. The true Son of God. Everything that Israel couldn't be. Compare Jesus to Israel in the wilderness. Israel was 40 years in the desert. Jesus, 40 days in the desert or wilderness. For 40 years, Israel complained and they murmured and they turned against God and they failed over and over and over. But Jesus trusted in God and obeyed. Again and again in the wilderness, they sin. But Jesus in the wilderness succeeds. Consider Jesus' response to that first temptation. Turn this stone to bread. And listen to what Jesus says, but actually let me read it in the wider context of what He's quoting. Because He's quoting Deuteronomy chapter 8. Let me read you a few verses of Deuteronomy chapter 8 surrounding the words that Jesus quoted. Verse 1, The whole commandment that I command you today you should be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give your father's. So in the context of wilderness wandering, to make it into the land of promise, which is a true and real place, a part of history, real geography that you can put your feet down on today, but also a picture, as Dan read of this morning, of our final place of rest in Christ and eternity. It's both and. It alludes to something much greater, much grander, that place of promise with God. He says, as you go in and possess the land, do this, Remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that He might humble you, testing you to see what's in your heart, whether you would keep His commandments or not. And He humbled you, and He let you hunger, but He fed you with manna, which you didn't know, nor did your fathers know, that He might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothing didn't wear out. Your foot did not swell these 40 years. Know then that in your heart, as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. So you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and by fearing him. You see what was happening in the wilderness? God was supernaturally taking care of them. You're not going to get hungry here because I'm going to feed you. And your clothes aren't going to wear out because I'm going to protect them. Your shoes are going to last for 40 years, they're not going to hurt your feet. I'm going to do this for you because I want to know what's in your heart. Even when I'm blessing you with every possible blessing, will you trust me? Will you follow me? Will you obey me? And they didn't. Even then, they didn't. And he says, so that you would know that we don't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. What's the temptation there? When Jesus is tempted, to turn these stones to bread, he says you shall not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. That when you're really hungry, just read the Bible. That really all you need to do is, all you need is some words. No, he's saying this when you have these desires, and these desires spring up in you, and you want this thing, you want this sin, which is going to prevail in you? What God's word says, or what you want? Who wins that fight? Who wins that battle? Will you say no to yourself? Will you say no to your desires? Even if those desires can be natural things if fulfilled in a God-honoring way. There's a word that starts with S, ends with X, which I won't talk about today because the kids are in here. But that's a normal, natural desire to be rightly fulfilled in the context of marriage and marriage only. And anything outside of that is sin to God. Before the marriage, with someone else during the marriage, with someone of the same sex, which is absolutely contrary to God's design of marriage. But in right application, it's good. In wrong application, it's sin, and sometimes of the most abominable kind. So when you're tempted, what will you trust? What will you feed with? It's not just reading the Bible more. It's saying in this moment, what prevails over me? What rules me? My my wants, my wishes, my desires? Am I ruled by that? Or I say, but God's Word says. But God's Word says says second temptation is to distort the word of god and typically to distort it so it fits what i already think or what i already want and man we do this all the time to take god's word and to twist it into whatever we already think or what we already want listen this is one of the reasons among many others That it's critical for us, if we're going to be healthy, balanced, correct, growing Christians, is to read God's Word, study God's Word in context. In context. Listen, this is not just a a preferred method of mine and other staff. We say we're going to preach through books of the Bible verse by verse. It's because it's the reality of a book with so many human authors, though we know God is the author, so many human authors in various genres, written in different times and different places to different groups of people, and with that profundity of words, you can make it say whatever you want it to say. And there are plenty of people preaching messages and plenty of pulpits that look like this, or taking God's word and just twisting it and contorting it because it's what people like to hear. And they know that appeals to, to folks. They know that does, as the Bible says, you know, it tickles the ear, which is actually a bit of a misnomer. It, scratches where they itch. So we twist it. And we do that in our own reading. And we do this even in our own Bible studies. We sit in those circles and we say, here's what this means to me. How do you feel about this text? And I say with all due respect, it doesn't matter how you feel. Get what the meaning is right and do what it says. He's distorting the Word of God. And Jesus responds with Deuteronomy 6.16. You shall not put your Lord God to the test As you tested him at Massah. Massah is one of the stops along the way in their long journey before they got the promised land. It's also referred to in Scripture as Meribah. Now again, I read a passage to you about God's provision for them. I mean, again, I don't know if you've ever thought about those things. Are you kidding me? God did more than provide water for them out of a rock. He did more for them than to provide manna from the heavens. He did more for them than provide the flesh of birds. I mean, he protected their shoes and their their sweatshirts. I mean, he took care of them in every way. And yet, when they got to a place of difficulty, even after miracle after miracle and provision after provision, they get thirsty at a spot and they begin questioning his faithfulness. And they begin testing him. Well, Satan tempted Jesus to do this. Go up to the temple and jump off. Now, if there's one prominent place... In all of Israel, it's the temple. If you want to be seen in Israel, you go to the temple. And if you want to really be seen, go to the pinnacle of the temple. That'll draw a crowd. And, And I get the temptation for the shortcut to authenticity or validation. Jesus jumps off the pinnacle of the temple and He hits the stones below. And maybe He does a superhero fall and He's just on one knee and a fist. And everybody says, oh, all right, he's God. He's God. He really is God. Let's follow him. That would have been cool, right? And some of you might be thinking, why didn't he just do that? He could have proven he was God right then and there. Everyone would have believed in him. They all would have talked about it. No one would have doubted. And maybe if he left one of those cool impressions in the stone, they could go to that place and say, look, right here. Remember that time Jesus jumped off the temple? Mount right here. Look, he landed right here. He's God. And that would have been awesome and we would still be lost in our trespasses and sins. We would still be dead. We would still be facing the judgment of a holy God because we'd still be sinful people with no payment made for our sin. The only way to save us was to atone for us, was to do exactly what Scriptures require. But Jesus is teaching some other lessons here. One, never presume upon God. Don't presume upon God. Don't sin, Christian, because you know theologically that He'll forgive you in the future. It's not an excuse to sin. Don't don't twist the Word of God selfishly. Is this what it really says? Is this what it really means? And how will I know if this is what it really says or what it really means? I would do that by carefully comparing all the Word of God. Sometimes I think we believe that the only way I'm really going to be able to understand the Bible is if I have some really good commentaries or a lot of good training or somebody explain it to me, I'm not minimizing any of those. Lord knows I I love commentaries and collect them. And I like listening to other good teaching. And someone's teaching on this text, which was so helpful to me, is D.A. Carson, which I'll readily acknowledge. But you have an instrument in your possession That will help you understand the Bible better. And it's called the Bible. And compare text with text. Statements with statements. Events with events. And make sure that what you're thinking is true isn't something you just extracted painfully from its context. That has nothing to do with the way the original hearers would have understood it. Nothing consistent with the rest of the testimony of Scripture. And frankly, just doesn't work. We compare Don't distort the Word of God. That's for our own sake. That's for our own benefit. That's so we won't be misled. That's so we won't be confused. That's so we won't sin. And the third temptation, again, far more aggressive, I guess you might say. It's not nuanced anymore. It's not, hey, there's nothing wrong with bread. Make yourself some. Nothing wrong with wanting to display yourself as the Messiah. I'm just giving you a shortcut to doing so. Now this one probably hits more to the heart of where many of us are. The third temptation is to deny the glory of God and instead to seek all that we desire from another source. To deny the glory of God and instead of saying in our minds and our hearts, Lord, I know what you require of us is to seek you first and your righteousness and then you'll add these things to us. We say, God, I'm going to skip the seeking you. And I'm sure going to skip the seeking the righteousness part, and I'm going to jump right to seeking the stuff I desire. And God, if you're the means to getting it for me, then so be it. That's called the prosperity gospel. And if you're not the means to getting it, then I'll get it some other way. But I'm going to go after what I want. I'm going to deny you your glory. Again, consider Jesus' response. We're back to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 13. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Well, why would he not bow down? Why would he not yield to Satan? Why would he not say, okay, you know what? You give me these things. You give me these things that I know are mine anyway. They're, mine, they're my inheritance already. Why? Because foundationally, this statement, it's the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by His name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you. For The Lord your God in the midst of you is a jealous God. Why do you not do this? Why do I not pursue the gods of this age? Why do I not pursue every desire that I have and whatever it takes to fulfill it? Lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you and He destroy you from off the face of the earth. Let me just throw this out there and very little time to expound upon it. But if there's one critical element missing from most Christians' personal theology, is any right sense of the fear of God. We have diminished God in so many ways, conscious and subconscious. We've reduced God to counselor and friend, partner, benefactor, advisor, helper, and I'm not saying he can't be those things, be so much more than those things. And at the root of every faithful Christian is an acknowledgement of the holiness of God. And I don't sin against God because God is a fearsome God. How could I choose someone else? How could I trust someone else? How could I walk away from him? He is the one true God. You know, Jesus already knew that the whole world was going to be his footstool. He knew this. Now, giving Satan the benefit of the doubt here, which sounds like an odd statement, he's not omniscient, okay? He doesn't have the full revelation of Scripture that we have now. And maybe he didn't know all the things that were going to take place. Maybe he he really thought that he could detour the whole process, derail it at several different critical junctures. Maybe he really thought that at the birth of Jesus, he could incite such insane, psychotic hatred and jealousy in an evil man named Herod that he could end this whole thing right here and now and get this baby Jesus killed. Then God, what you going to do? Maybe he thought he could. Or maybe he thought at this moment that the Son of God, the perfect Lamb who came to take away the sins of the world, in a moment of great intense weakness and need, could actually be tempted to abandon his mission and instead turned to him for all these things that God had promised him. See, Jesus knew that the cost of all of these things was the cross. But it would be through his obedience and faithfulness that he would be the heir of these things. Through his obedience and faithfulness, he would inherit these things. That's what Hebrews 1, verse 2 tells us. Everything that Satan was promising him was his already future tense. Everything that genuinely will bring you joy, everything that will genuinely give you peace, everything that will genuinely cause you to both feel and be able to give love is promised you already in Christ. And it will be yours one day. We will enter into his joy, we will enter into his peace, and we will enter into his perfect love to be loved completely. To have peace without any hint of conflict. To have joy without even the scent of sin. This is our inheritance if we are obedient and faithful. And consider this just for a moment. Satan might tempt you with the fulfillment of every desire. Let's be specific. He might tempt you with something that will make you feel good, that you like. Wouldn't be tempting if you didn't have a desire for it, but you got to understand what the Bible tells you about those temptations. Is the end of them is destruction and death. He's offering you this. He's telling you this is going to you're going to feel happier or more satisfied or more restful or more at peace or more fulfilled or more whatever. In this in this perceived gap that you have. I'm going to fill it with this and you'll be satisfied, he says. Your marriage isn't doing this, so you can have this and it'll fill in that gap. But all he's doing is sowing the seeds of your own destruction and death. That's what sin does. Remember this. And I know you know this, Christian. Our enemy's a deceiver and he will not, indeed he cannot, deliver what he promises. Never forget that little element. You know, if you're reading that text in Matthew chapter 4 and you're kicking this around in your life group and you're wondering, well, you know, could Satan have given him this? I mean, Satan offered all this stuff, right? Could Satan have given him this? Are you kidding me? No more than your extramarital affair is going to give you real joy and happiness. It's the false premise of a perpetual liar whose greatest ability is not to deliver on his promises but to deceive the masses. That's the essence of all temptation. Let me give you some reminders. It's easy for me to go a little bit in overtime today because I'm not taxing everyone over in children's church because they're here, so tax you here. I want you to remember these things. And I'll leave you with some, some personal application of the text. The, the way I preach this today may have been different than you've heard the temptation of Jesus preached. And, and that was intentional, not just to be different for different sake. But I think sometimes we miss the forest for the trees here. Jesus didn't go out into the wilderness on some grand 40-day excursus for the sake of an object lesson. He's not saying to those people behind him, say, all right, kids, I want you to watch. I'm going to go out here, and the devil's going to be out there. Watch what I do, and then you do it. Okay? That being said, I want you to understand that what Jesus did serves as a model for us. It's much more than that, but it's not less than that. So I don't want to diminish that. That's just only a small fraction of what happens here. Can you and I learn from what Jesus did? Are there some things that we can do like Jesus did? Yes. That's not the primary point here. We do know, as I said, in Hebrews 4.15, that we have a high priest who's able to sympathize. Why? Because in every respect, he's been tempted like we are. So as a model, if that's one level of understanding this text, and it is, it's true, it's right, it's just not the deepest level, what can we learn? Are you going to trust in the goodness of God regardless of your circumstances? Sometimes I really think that's the foundational temptation. Or let me say, let me re- rephrase that. Sometimes I think that is the catalytic temptation for those who will walk away from the faith. Why am I going through this? Why is this happening to me? This isn't fair. Where's God? Do you care? Do you hear? Where are you, God? Will you trust Him? It's by your circumstances. And when it comes to that, not living by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God, if you've got a tension in your life right now between what God demands and what you want, your demands, His desire, are you going to submit to His will or are you going to give in to yours? And that's a real application here. This is the real battle of temptation. It's fighting yourself and winning. You know nothing of the power of temptation if you've not beaten it. Will you make any sacrifice for his sake? Will you make any sacrifice? Will you sacrifice anything that you desire? Or will your life just continually be a pursuit of whatever you want, whatever you do, and asking God and everyone that surrounds you to clean up the messes? Will you sacrifice? Not only is Jesus a model for us, but remember, believer, Jesus is a ready help for us when we face temptation. This is what the scriptures promise. We're promised that in every temptation there is a way of escape. But one of the means to that escape is to rely hard on, to trust in and call on Jesus. Because He Himself has suffered when tempted. He's able to help those who are being tempted. Hebrews 2.18, He is able to help me when I'm tempted. Remind yourself of that. He is able to help me when I'm tempted. Listen, no one understands your weakness better than Jesus. Jesus was fully human like like we are. He knows human weakness. No one understands our enemy like Jesus. I mean sometimes you and I will say and I know what we mean by it, we'll say well, you know Satan was just really tempting me. I don't want to shatter your own ego, but it's unlikely you rank high enough in the grand strata of things that you get Satan himself to tempt you. I would suspect that you're getting somewhere someone Far down the line in terms of rank um, in that whole ungodly kingdom. Jesus faced, he faced their prince, the prince of the power of the air, the one who rules darkness and one third of the fallen angels with him. He has no equal power, equal bearing, or equal footing against God Almighty. He is not. Nonetheless, he understands the enemy better than we do. No one understands the cost of sin more than Jesus. You think you do. We think we do. If I do this, and that's helpful sometimes, though, to think through that. Consider the cost. If I do this, what will it cost me? What will it cost me in terms of my relationship with God? What will it cost me in terms of my relationship with my family? What will it cost me in terms of my reputation? My, all those things. But Jesus knows the cost even better than we do. That's why He's able to help us. He understands what sin is about. Sin, when it's finished, brings death. Jesus died for sins. And listen, no one wants us to succeed more than Jesus. Do You see that? Our champion, He who conquered sin for our sake, is in our corner and wants us to win and makes a way that we can. Finally, I'll leave you with this. When you sing your songs of praise in just a moment, when you think about the songs we have sung already today, elevating God's glory in Jesus and what He's done for us, remember that Jesus' success over temptation is our victory. Yes, there's a model to be followed there. Yes, there's an effect of what He accomplished there that He might help us. But you want to know what was really taking place there? Satan was battling Jesus, the king. The king who comes into the world and says, the kingdom of God is here. So repent, believe the gospel, and follow me. Why? Because I'm the king. The king that's going to come back one day for his people. The king that's going to rule and reign forever. And every knee will bow and every knee will see him. This king is on a battlefield right now. And he's battling the enemy for us. For our sake. Because on this battlefield, He will destroy Satan. He will succeed for us. Consider Galatians 3.16. It says, The promises were made to Abraham and his offspring. It does not say to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ. What is this promise? This promise that I will bless you. This promise that I will make you a unique people unto Myself a treasure possession for me. This promise of establishing a unique people among all the peoples of the earth, God's people made to Abraham is ultimately carried out in Christ. How does he succeed at doing that? Well, he's a new and better Adam. Where Adam faced temptation and failed, he wilted, he gave in. Jesus does not, he succeeds. He's our new representative, the beginning of a new people. He's a new Israel, the true Israel. Israel tested in the wilderness to see if they'd obey God, see if they'd be faithful to Him. They weren't. They didn't. Jesus tested in the wilderness. Tempted and tried. Succeeds for us. Remember, He couldn't give His life as a ransom for our sins if He had any sins of His own to pay for. He's the forever spotless Lamb of God, according to 1 Peter 1.19. The Lamb without blemish or spot The precious blood of Christ that takes away the sins of the world. How could Jesus have saved any of us had He not won this battle against temptation? He couldn't. Do you see what I'm saying? He won that battle for me and you. He won the battle against temptation throughout His life so that when the time came for Him to go to the cross of His own volition, he could do so knowing that he's taking on the sins of the world, not the sins of himself. And he who knew no sin, that's critical, could become sin for us. He could be treated as the worst of sinners for us. He could take on our sin for us so that we could become the righteousness of God in him. So to all the righteousness that he defended. All the righteousness that He established through all of His obedience, all the righteousness that He carefully guarded by doing everything the Father told Him to do, and nothing that He did, not sinless in every way, though tempted in every way, was so that He could give that righteousness to us in the greatest exchange in all of time and eternity. My sin for His righteousness, and vice versa. That's what the temptations of Christ are about. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, I pray that you'd gladden the heart of every believer in this room of the glory of our salvation in Christ. Father, I pray you would invoke in us a sense of awe and wonder, amazement, and worship. Worship would be our response. Thank you, God, for doing this. Father, I pray that you would eliminate from us any wrong sense of grace and mercy. But instead, Father, put in us a desire, an increasing desire for holiness, for godliness. Father, may we not presume upon you. May we not twist what you've said. But Father, may in every way we aim to be faithful and obedient. And Father, I thank you that we are able to do this not in our own strength, We do not become new Adams by turning over a new leaf and by trying harder, by beginning again, but because we have a new and better Adam, Jesus, who saves us, who changes us from the inside out, who makes us new creations, who puts a new heart in us, a heart ruled by Your Spirit. So, Father, I pray that we would yearn now to walk by that Spirit and not by the flesh, not fulfilling every want and desire, as if it didn't matter what we did, but instead, Father, pleasing You. Pleasing You. So, Father, stir us to that. I pray that in this room, even now, there's real repentance happening and honest and genuine confession happening. Not just remorse and regret, but, Father, turning from sin to You and saying, God, forgive me. Set me free. Make me new again. Renew me. Restore me. Heal me. I pray among the believers in this room all those things will be happening. Listen, as you pray this morning, if you're not a Christian yet, then I hope the clear and obvious challenge to you in the message is this. One day, every single person will stand in the presence of God Himself before His throne in judgment. On this great day, Christians will celebrate. We'll celebrate that what our hearts have treasured and what our minds have believed in, our eyes now see and our hands now touch. We receive the blessings of that salvation and all of its fulfillment, the enjoyment, the pleasures of God forever and ever and ever. Every good thing and every evil thing undone. It's a day of celebration, but for those who don't know Christ, it's a day of horror and terror. The hearts of all revealed and things done in secret, made public. Those things... Only our own thoughts broadcast, and what will we say on that day? Will we mutter those same excuses? It's not that bad. Everybody does it. I'm only human. Or in that day, will we recognize the full weight and consequence of sin with the only expectation judgment, condemnation? Eternal suffering. This is what the Bible teaches. This awful news, this horrifying news, is what makes the gospel so good. It's what makes the good news good. That Jesus took our punishment, suffered our death, but beat it, beat death, destroyed it, conquered it, came back to life, and offers that same life for all who believe in Him. Taking away death's victory, taking away its painful sting. Replacing it with the promise of glory, the promise of heaven, the promise of God Himself. God holds that out to you right now. Will you receive that? Will you turn from yourself? Abandon your self-righteousness? Seek God to forgive your sins and ask Him to give you new life? Will you become a follower of Jesus today? Turning from your sin... And in faith to Him, say, save me. Our only hope. That hope can be yours, as sure as it is ours, all who believe in this room today. Father, moving us by the power of Your Spirit that everything that we say and do and every response we give would be pleasing in Your sight. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.